Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome back, I guess, to Show Your Work. We're back. It feels like it's been a minute. It has. It's only been a week. We took a week off to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Confederation in Canada. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and or an unofficial July 4th, hey ya to you guys. Uh, <laughs> way to go. Yeah. Happy 4th yesterday. This is going to be posted on Wednesday, July 5th. So it kind of worked out because our long weekend, well, our Canada Day was on Saturday, so it means that Monday, July 3rd, was a federal holiday in Canada, and then the 4th is the 4th in the U.S., so two days off, which is, you know, very exciting. But in the meantime, since it seems like we've been away so long, I made this discovery, and maybe it's not that revelatory, but it was a big deal for me. Uh, So I've been listening to all these podcasts other than our own, enjoying being able to catch up. I'm currently in the middle of, get this, one called Go Pirates. Does this mean anything to you? No. Not yet. This is a podcast from uh, the fine people at Previously.tv about… Pirates? About Veronica Mars. Oh. They're doing Veronica Mars podcast, which is excellent, which I'm enjoying. However, and I say this with all the love… Uh, Elizabeth, who is a great friend of, of our podcast and our blog and reads all the time, told me about listening to podcasts at one and a half speed. What do you, what do you mean? Like everybody talks faster? Like you press the one and a half speed button and suddenly a 45 minute podcast can get done in like 30 minutes. I don't know if I'm down with that. Why? I quite, I mean… I am really particular about my podcasts and their length because I time them either according to my commute or a certain walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine and good. I'm not saying like… but That some, would throw off my math is what I'm telling you. W- would throw off your what? My math. Yeah, but what if you could instead of… That's great. If you have a podcast that is the same length as your commute, you're golden. But what if you don't? What if you are me and always sitting in the car… Or like pressing pause on the podcast with 13 minutes left as you walk into the office. Wouldn't it be great if you could finish or get two in or whatever? But do you lose the dramatic pauses and the the ums and the ahs and the gaps? I don't know. No, they're still there. They're just, you know, it's once you get into the rhythm of the way people speak. The way that we speak is still the same. It's just at a slightly higher pitch and tremor. Like, it's not like a Mickey Mouse, ba 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 ba. Like, it's just yeah. a, a slightly faster pace. I'm. This is fascinating that you're mentioning this because I recently just got into a podcast. It's the first podcast I've listened to from these people. And the reason I'm listening to this podcast is because, of course, I was looking for Elvis Presley podcasts. <laughs> anyway, so there is… A podcast called um, you maybe know of it. I'm I'm hoping you already know about it. 
because um, their their name is those conspiracy guys. Oh yes, okay. You I know do, them. I, I know of the podcast. I have yet to dive in there. Okay, so they're like Irish, super Irish. <laughs> I love how like, that's why you think I might know them. Yeah, and so they're the the signature of these guys is that their podcasts are five hours long. Oh, like the Gilmore guys. Yeah. Sure. And they always examine a conspiracy. So the one that I'm listening to, obviously, is the Elvis Presley conspiracy. And I don't think that I want to shorten their five hours to two and a half hours. Like, I'm fully into… Even though I've I've made their podcast probably longer than it needs to be because there are some phrases and words that they say with their heavy Irish accents that I need to, like, listen back to… Or look up, you know, their expressions, the colloquialism. I'm so fascinated, so I have to pause and Google, like, what does this mean? Okay, well, first of all, I think it would not be two and a half hours. I think it would be shortening it to something closer to uh, three and a half or uh, three and two thirds or something. Second, even though uh, people now have us on double speed and are like, get to the topics, I need to know what you needed to look up. From the Irish podcast I've, conspiracy. There people. have been six or seven that I can't even remember anymore. And then I had to, but I, what I did have to look up was, ah, um, there was an expression that they used, uh, it had to do with parking somewhere, water, something. Did this, does this, um, had to do something to do with school. Anyway, yeah. What? It, parking, water, and school? Yeah, I can't, like, listen, I was... I was walking at the time, so I had to actually pull my dogs off the side of the sidewalk, pause it, look on my phone. Anyway, I still don't exactly know what it means. Some of me thinks that it means that um, you go and make out with a girl. Because they they kept talking about having your fingers in it, getting your fingers wet. (laughs) I was like, is this about fingering a girl? No, it's almost definitely not. Anyway, um, yeah, I was really… I was really, um, I was really um, like going to, I was going to ask you about it. And then when you said, oh, shortening podcasts, I was like, would you dare shorten the Irish podcast, Duanna? Yeah, huh? <laughs> it's even more enticing when you can hear them at a one and a half speed throwing those Irish idioms at you. I'm going to find out what that is. And this is the Stay first tuned. the first non-North American podcast I've really spent some time on. So it actually also surprises me um, their language, their politically incorrect language. Like they throw around the F word, not fuck, but they throw around the F word meaning like a person's body to describe a body liberally. Like they'll talk about a girl and be like, she's bleh. I don't get it. Fat. Oh, fat. Not what I thought you were going to say at all. Yeah. Okay. But, but okay, but, like, wouldn't Lindy West say that, like, that's okay, that that's just a descriptor? Well, I think that the way, yeah, sure, she would say that's a descriptor without, like, a negative connotation. Exactly. I mean, these guys are calling people that way because they're judging that person for being that way. Why do you love it? The podcast? I don't love the podcast, but I do enjoy the conversation that they're having about Elvis. How am I back to Elvis? <laughs> All right, let's get to the uh, the meat of the thing. Did you say that in an Irish way? I was going to get there, yeah. yeah. I was going to kind of lean into the… It would be more like the meat of the ting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, 
the biggest news to land at the end of last week was the release of Jay-Z's new album, 444. Um, it's still, as of the time that we're recording, is not available on anywhere but Tidal. Like, that was my favorite reaction of the whole thing was the uh, that, that meme that I'm sure you saw yeah. of me trying to imagine what 444 sounds like because I don't have Tidal. That's right. And it's just a video of Jay-Z nodding, like, not really to time of any music. Yeah. It's quite entertaining. Yeah. So it's, I mean, by Wednesday when this airs, it could be available on Apple. It could be released. Like, people are saying, there are some people who are speculating that Jay-Z's holding it to title for a week, and then it'll be available across other platforms. Beyonce's Lemonade was exclusive to title, I think, for 24 hours or… But we'd all got it got it in one version or another we, on HBO that's b- right. first. That's right. Which is still, like, not everybody has HBO. Of course not. Yeah. And uh, the other thing is that it's also available, I believe, this caused some outrage in my household, to Sprint customers. Yes. So, you know, that's a real interesting thing because that is a very overt collision of artistic and corporate interests, right? Like, it's not even, like, people who have showed title, all this love, all this time. Like, you, I like that you can't even be a title come lately. Like, yeah. you couldn't sign up and be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, here's my money. They're like, too bad. Yeah. Fuck well, you. you could. Like, if you were already a title subscriber before June – you didn't have to be a title and Sprint subscriber. You were a grandfathered title um, subscriber and you could get whatever it was. Right. But it still is like, I think if you subscribed up to the 26th, then it was available to you. It still means that you have to have had the psychic foresight to yeah. realize that there was going to be an album dropped in yeah. three days' time that you were going to want. And some people are mad. Like Mark Ronson was like, what the fuck, I can't listen to this, and complained about it on Twitter and bitched about it. And, you know, and that's Mark Ronson, who, in theory, should have more access than regular people. But that's really entertaining. (laughs) Like, as much as we do this and we knew we were going to talk about this, it's really entertaining to think about um, what would happen to a culture vulture if they couldn't listen. Like, just the agony of, if SNL was still happening, there would have been Something about, you know, all the ways that you are pretentious when you try to pretend like you have title and you'd like you know about Jay-Z. Yeah. I assume there are black market listening parties happening already, right? Yeah. I yeah. think that there were a lot of black market listening parties. Um, and, you know, beyond the people who are just like, whatever, I don't care. You know, the discussion, part of the discussion, of course, the main discussion is about the content. and Of course. And then part of the discussion has been, is this too much of a commercialization of art. And is this a commercialization of a product that isn't winning in its lane? So here's what's interesting about that, though. I don't think you and I sitting here on a show that is about work, speaking of work, guys, do not eat a very gummy sour candy whilst trying to make a point because it doesn't always work out. Let's just work this out for a second. Why did you use whilst there? I never use whilst, and I hate whilst. Why, why wouldn't while have been, like, just as good in that context? Well, in this context, it was because I was trying to work my tongue and teeth around <laughs> a little bit, and I needed that extra S and T to get things done. Right. But are you a, whilst, a whilster? 
No. How long have we known each other? I've never said whilst before. And but there are people who are whilsters. And I generally find that whilst is unnecessary. I also don't like it when people say, uh, oh, I'm going to that movie also. No, you're going to that movie too. Yes. Anyway, back to Jay-Z. Yes. You and I generally don't spend our time talking about the commercialization of X or the availability of this or that piece of art on that platform. One of the things that's interesting is that you said, oh, it's about the content and yeah, we're going to get there. But because we're getting the information about the content secondhand-ish, it invites those conversations about commercialization and art. It invites those conversations about the delivery system and venue more than it would if it was just an album that dropped universally, right? Yeah. So that's kind of interesting to me. It was even brought up to me at an event I was at yesterday where, you know, I was having a conversation. Kathleen was part of it. And we're talking about Jay and we're talking about the album. And then someone actually said, but what do you think about the fact that it's only on title? Um, so that is definitely, like, there are people who are side-eyeing, like, why title? You know, number one, because… Well, we know why, but… Exactly. I mean, is it the equivalent conversation of why is no one bitching or not as much bitching happens when someone releases something exclusively on Apple? Yes. It's the same concept, right? It's, it's just that everybody, most people, the a majority of people, uh, because of, like, the devices that most people are using have Apple, but it is the exact same, like, delivery system. Of course it is. It's like when something is exclusive to uh, HBO or whatever. Like, every year we have the same discussion. Every year, uh, you know, in sort of late May, early June, you say, don't forget to watch The Spelling Bee. And I say, it's only available on, like, ESPN 14. And we're not a sports household, so I don't subscribe to all the ESPN so that I can get that one... Right. Channel. And then I have to send you clips. And then you send me clips, which I appreciate. <laughs> and now the whole internet sends me clips. Right. But it's the same concept, right? Like, if something is exclusive to HBO or Fox or whatever, it's only available to people who pay for it. If you want it, you pay for it. The only difference is that an artist who is not Jay-Z will choose to take their album to the place where most people can access it because they're not as confident as he is in the fact that people will come to this relatively obscure venue to get it. So there's two things here. He's trying to build this relatively obscure venue. You know, he acquired title a few years ago. It has gone through some business setbacks. It is not even close to Spotify or Apple, the major players in the streaming service business. And then of course, The secondary part of it is like, oh, Jay's only doing this to build his business. So how real is it? Is it exploitative? Um, I don't know why this conversation still to me, and this is people, if you want to accuse me, if you're out there listening of having my Carter glasses on, my pro Beyonce, like pro whatever Carter glasses on. Um, please do so. I want to be called out on that, but I just don't see why this would be any different than any other artist exploiting their own lives and work and trying to make money off it. If you have listened to 444, one of the themes beyond infidelity and all that of the album is Black Enterprise. 
So in Jay-Z exclusively releasing what he thinks is his defining album of his life right now, 444, on title, he's also sort of linking it to a thematic um, encouragement that he is making towards his community, which is black enterprise is the way to freedom. Sure. And he has said that for years, for decades, has said, you know, nobody teaches uh, many, many, many parts of the black community how to run a business like a business person. Uh, They are not taught by grandfathers upon grandfathers upon grandfathers who have come through these systems of how to run a business. Which which is its own kind of inheritance beyond a bank account. Yes? hundred percent. Yes. Is... uh, There's some idiom about that, of course. You know, you can inherit wealth, but inheriting the means to build your own is another whole story. And that confidence and entitlement to have, to be able to go into a world that has already allowed you in that door. And that you can, like, handle any situation, right, is the idea. All of these things are drums that he has been beating for, what, at least a decade? Sure. Um, And, you know, if you read not very far between the lines in the Beyonce and Jay-Z love story, this enterprise, this enterprisingness, and the the idea that you can build your own uh, empire is part of this love story. It's part of the, the conversation that Beyonce and Jay-Z have been having arguably since they met. Uh, and so I, I think it's a fair point that A, he's just doing what anybody would do. He's creating kind of a scarcity model and that B, he's sort of becoming his own example, right? If somebody else was doing this, you know, if God, I don't know, if, if whomever Mark Zuckerberg was starting his own sort of music streaming service, everybody would be like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Of course he is. So why is it different? I guess it's different because he's an artist. Is is that what it is? I think that's partly what it is. We are supposed to believe that artists are in it for their art, right? Whenever we hear a story about, oh, I took scale, scale is the lowest an actor can be paid. Uh, I took scale to do this job. Right, an independent film. I didn't collect a salary for this because I did this. Or if you hear about actors going to do Broadway, often the very, very famous actors that you know who are film and movie stars who do Broadway, they make like hundreds of dollars a week doing Broadway, like it's in the low, low ranges of a salary because they can, because they can afford it for their art, Mm -hmm. right? Like you do the big blockbuster maybe. You have the luxury of not taking as much money. That's right. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's what the the pushback is that that you're sort of referring to is, yeah, he is selling himself at once as a business person and as an artist. Well... You know, all of this that you have just said is encapsulated in um, a song called Family Feud on the album. And I just, I'll read you a couple of those lyrics. Um, Because again, when we go back to Black Enterprise and we go back to um, the merging or the, uh, yeah, the merging of art and commerce, this is what he says about that. Yeah, we did that. Black-owned things, 100% Black-owned champagne, and we merrily, merrily eaten off these streams. Y'all drinking Perrier Jouet, huh? But we ain't getting through to you yet, huh? Okay, I'm sorry, but like, um, what's better than one billionaire? Two, 
and then Beyonce is, you can hear Beyonce on, on this track. What's better than one billionaire too, especially if they're from the same hue as you? Y'all stop me when I stop telling the truth. So part of what he's saying here is, I guess maybe an acknowledgement, like, yeah, I know you're going to kind of criticize me for only releasing this on title, but I'm building a black enterprise. Why aren't you supporting black business? Can I, uh, I think you're reading lyrics from where? From a a fan site or from Jay-Z's official site? From Genius. Hey, Hey, Genius. Genius. Can you spell Hue for me, please? H-U-E. See? Yeah. That's nice because, of course, especially when they're from the same Hue, if you're listening, mm-hmm. also could nod to Houston. Of course, home of Beyonce, not home of Jay-Z, but nonetheless. And then the Hue, H-U-E, I think we get it. I just, I appreciate clarity yeah. in lyrics. But I love that, like, you mentioned that family thing and how family inheritance sometimes is more than just the cash in the bank account. It's a legacy. It's an attitude. It's a confidence. So when he says what's better than one billionaire, two, these are two billionaires together in a house of the same hue trying to pass that legacy on. Um, To their, let's just get it out there, (laughs) three children. To their three children um, a dynasty, if you will, and a dynasty built around a family business, a part of which is title. Um, and again, that's the black enterprise that he's addressing in this album. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, if they owned a chain of hotels, if they owned, you know, a billion restaurants or like Jessica Simpson, who is a billionaire based on her eponymous clothing business. Yes? Yeah. There's- well, it's worth a billion dollars, right? Yeah, sure. Was, yeah. I mean, sure. Uh, but you know, there's there would be no sort of eyebrow raise there because there's no pretense at selling art. Like, this is both more honest and not, it's not dishonest. I just mean, this is more honest and straightforward in a way because it's just like, yeah, I'm selling the stuff I make and creating an, an empire that way and creating uh, billionaires and legacies and so forth that way, as opposed to, oh, no, I'm going to diversify my interests and have, you know, right a chain of, I don't know, Tex-Mex restaurants in the South, which I'm sure they also have. But the fact that it's about music yeah. is, I think, where the eyebrows raised. That said, it doesn't change the fact that title is not even in third place. So is Jay-Z and this album enough to save title? or to put title where Jay-Z wants it to be, I'm going to answer my own question. I'm going to say no. Um, Yeah? Sorry, can you just pause? Yeah. Because I would like to believe that the archivists at uh, (laughs) Jay-Z Enterprises or Parkwood, somebody has just found your audio clip and is like clipping it and saving it. (laughs) And that's going to be like the thing to beat. They're going to be like, this random woman on the internet, said, I'm going to say no. And then they're going to, like, watch it climb. You just became somebody's mantra. I would like to. I mean, in five years, if uh, Tidal is going neck and neck with Spotify or has exceeded Spotify, great. I I won't be sad about that. I won't be mad about it. I just don't know that even Beyonce, after launching Lemonade on Tidal exclusively after it aired on HBO – um, that was enough to get me to subscribe to Title, which I did for two months. And then my credit card got stolen, and the credit card that it like the credit card that Title had 
lapsed or like they, you know, were like, hey, enter your new credit card or update your credit card. And I was like, ah, I'm not going to do that. So I left the app on my phone and I didn't delete the app. And then um, when all the buzz was happening around the twins and I was, you know, wondering, oh God, I mean, I don't want to miss any kind of announcement. And this was about eight weeks ago. I was like, let me just resubscribe to Tidal to make sure I've got all my Beyonce bases covered. Oh, you are a title <laughs> of convenience. <laughs> and then I think I had to resubscribe or redo it last week. But I'm saying though, that that's the only time I remember that Tidal is on my phone. Most of the time, um, I get my music from Apple. So I'm not saying that I am the end-all and be-all example generalization of how people get their music, but when we're talking about the work of Jay-Z and a big focus of his work is building title, I don't, I still don't know as much as I like this album and as much as I appreciate the work he put into it, I don't know that it's enough to elevate title. All right, let's go to content because we know what is on this album because it has been exhaustively discussed, right? Specifically, the conversations about uh, the responses to allegations made on Lemonade. There's call and response here, right? She alleged, she informed, we believe women, so she informed us. He answers, he confirms, he apologizes, he capitulates. Yeah, this is scrubs in like, like the, like the, uh, like on steroids. Right. Like, right? Like, remember how Scrubs came out and there was an answer an answer back to Scrubs and this and that? This is that on, like, a huge, like, a way bigger level. Here's my question to you. Carter Stan that you are. And, you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. But here's my question. If this was anybody else, would we not say, okay, but opening this up no longer allows you privacy, no longer affords you privacy? Or is there a way in which you feel like they are beating that game? Part of me thinks that. Like, you're right in that um, that's what we talk about all the time. The moment that you at least open these doors, then how can I not ask you? How can I not talk to you about this? You made your art about this. And yet, like, Beyonce doesn't talk to anybody. But how is it different from like a Taylor Swift who we are like, oh God, could you not have any more boyfriends and then discuss the yeah. details in a song? I mean, I'll be honest. How is it different? Like, well, let's just be let's real. Let's answer that. One of the reasons why is because one is art and the other is not. And I, well, what? Is Taylor Swift not allowed to draw artistic inspiration from her failed relationships? Yeah, sure. It's not clever. She's not clever about it. It's it's a lot of like, that time when I wore a green dress and we were at the place and we did that thing and I ate bacon. Like it's very, <laughs> there's no mystery. There's no hint. There's no Becky with the good hair. There's no wondering. There's no interpretation, right? Like you mentioned Genius. Hey, Genius. Um, which is about sort of interpreting lyrics and finding the, mir- the meaning in them and so forth, right? There's not always a lot to find in the tailor. It's right there in skywriting. Right. So that to me is one difference, you know, that there's a So there's no fun for us. There's no fun. And I mean, I guess that's what, that's a thing that we have come to 
embrace in in songwriting in song lyrics right as long as I can remember is sort of reading between the lines of the lyrics like the liner notes the whatever to find the thing to find the mystery so there's that that's part of it that's part of why I think it is more art than she is on the other hand maybe not so much well okay I mean as eye-rolly as this is I think that that wasn't the only thing. Whereas Taylor's album seemed to be only geared towards the relationship and the green dress that time and the bacon and we went to the World Fair and the carnival and whatnot. I really... <laughs> I like this fanfic that we're writing here. Lemonade wasn't just about that time or those times that my husband cheated on me and Becky and this and that. As no, we know, not. it was much bigger. Yes. That was served to us along with a, a big dose of here are the injustices that many women, black women, have experienced. Here is how we are treated unfairly. Here is how I would like to wrap all of us in a, the collective experience and stand together. Similarly, Jay-Z's album is not just about infidelity. As we just talked about, it's also about black ambition. It's about black enterprise, et cetera, et cetera. And about specifics, right? Uh, the, the line I love most from Lemonade, other than the, the obvious, is, uh, you know, them children of Celestine and Matthew. Like, it's about Beyonce and Solange specifically. Uh, Jay-Z sings about his mother. She essentially has a coming out story on this album. There are stories, you're right, that are about their worlds, both big and small, and the infidelity, which gets front front row center, is only part of it. And in a way, their infidelity, too, is both, as you said, specific and universal. I spoke to Kathleen about her reaction to Jay-Z and the album, and she, one of her first reactions was, on the infidelity bit, it wasn't just about his own unfaithfulness. It was a message to black men about how responsible they should be with their success. If part of it, if part of success comes with temptation, um, how to address that temptation. And so, you know, she is a black woman who has her brothers and who has black men in her life who's speaking from that perspective, where she was hearing it as a black woman and thinking to herself, I hope that black men, some black men, at least can internalize what Jay's saying here. Last question. In the reviews that we have heard and read, is anybody talking about how, like, oh, it's compulsively listenable or it's sing-alongable or... Like how, because many of us are flying blind, is it, is it, is it catchy? Is it an amazing album? Have we heard? Um, yeah, we have. I mean, I, I've listened to it and I can tell you, given what I know of you, I think you're going to love it. There's no sort of whatever, for lack of a better way of describing it. There's no like club banger. Right. On this, on this album. So I'm not saying they're all slow songs. No, no, no. But it's, uh, uh, I know what I know about me and you saying I'm going to love this means like, oh, it's a, it's a storytelling album. Like there's a a narrative that goes through. And so there aren't like beats here that you're going to be like in your car and rolling down the windows and like banging to. That said, 
there is something a lot more melodic about what we're hearing on 444, yeah, even in the samples. That's the magic words as far as I'm concerned. That's right. So there's, it's very melodic. And what, what people are talking about in terms of the quality of the music, which is what your question is, is that this is an album and his first album um, on which he works with only one producer. So he works with no ID. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's it's a rarity these days, especially, where albums are put together typically uh, with the artist and several different producers on different tracks. Like if you take, even if we go, I mean, we've talked about Taylor Swift already, but we, if we want to even talk about Adele, for example, um, 25, most of the tracks have different producers. And that's very normal because… These days. Yeah, even I think depending on who you are, that has been, right? Like you… In the last 20 years, for sure. Yeah. You go into a studio with some songwriters mm-hmm. or some producers and you produce, say, half a dozen tracks and you're like, thanks, and the producer gets paid for a week or three weeks or whatever of work. That's right. According to their quote, and maybe three of them wind up on the album or yeah. maybe five of them or whatever. Yes, it is unusual to have an album be uniformly back. That's right. And now, that's why, sort of, yeah, jump go. on you. That's why when Adele gets up for best album, she gets up with a goddamn phalanx of 98 that's right. white dudes all like chortling among themselves because those are all producers of yes. individual tracks. And we can see that visual because we all watched the Grammys and we saw what that stage looked like. You know, the the interesting part about this album um, is that, yeah, it was just Jay-Z and No ID. And the thing about that is, and some people are starting to sort of draw that comparison, No ID himself referenced Quincy Jones. So if you remember the Quincy Jones-Michael Jackson experiment or example, that was one of the most legendary artist-producer relationships. I wish I had a word for the face I'm making right now. I'm making the face where you like turn your lips down, but in an approving pout and nod, like, right. I don't know what to call this, but that's what I'm doing. I'll make a face and put it up. Yeah. So I have been reading, Jay-Z, as we know, has not spoken yet at at the time of this recording about the making of 444, except to release some liner notes um, online. But No ID has been interviewed by both Rolling Stone and the New York Times so far, and he talked about the process of working with Jay on the album, and it's very much he took his inspiration from Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. And again, I think that it's an interesting and it feels new approach in these times to record producing because you do sense um, you do sense a narrative arc on 444, given that the two of them sat down together and it was more than just a regular studio mixing relationship. No ID was privy to Jay's secrets, what was going on in his life. And he was the producer. He was that person who pushed Jay-Z in studio and out of studio to be like, hey, so I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but remember how you told me about that thing? Well, hey, I just sampled, you know, I just found this song and here's what I've put together. Um... I sampled it from Nina Simone, or I sampled it from Hannah Williams, and you told me you'd been listening to these kinds of songs, and look what I did, and what do you think? And at one point, um, Jay-Z inhaled, exhaled, and said, okay, fine, and left, went home, and as the story goes now, 
woke up at 4.44 in the morning and wrote 4.44, the title track, which is the track where he basically reveals this is how I did her wrong. I believe a lot of things. I think there's going to be much to unpack. I don't believe for a second that he woke up at 4.44, (laughs) and neither do you. (laughs) I Listen, I don't believe that either. 100% 100% I don't. What I appreciate is I like legend building. Yeah, of course. That's a great brand. But he woke yeah. up at 222 and was like, this story would be so much cooler if it were 444. Or he stayed in the studio. Until 444, sure. That's yes. right. Um, but yeah, this is, to me, I really, that was one of the components about the album that really interested me, that that producer-artist working relationship experience. Well, maybe, you know, more to come here, obviously, but maybe we'll talk more about whether this is the new, you know, auteur and artist uh, conversation, you know, because music is on a large level not selling the way it once did, so maybe more narrative concept albums like this are on their way back and one producer is the way to do that. So, you know, stand by. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So, you know, when we started this uh, podcast and I was talking about Veronica Mars uh, and, you know, you, like, let's just get into the legend of Veronica Mars for a second, which is to say, I told you how important it was. You rolled your eyes at me. You then galumphed down umpteen Veronica Mars episodes in the space of, I think, two weeks and adore it and worship it. Yes? Yes. Sometimes. And I haven't finished season three. (laughs) (laughs) Tell the people why. I don't want it to end. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, you're like like Joey Tribbiani with the book in the freezer. Yes, I'm a child. But yeah, I've watched about half of season three. Often, I have interests that you would uh, casually call, you know, like, like uh, I don't know, more obscure, uh, possibly less high end. Uh, and then they turn out to be revelations. Uh, so I just need to scrub that in a little bit. We could also talk about a Hamilton. It's been a while since we mentioned Hamilton on this podcast. And now I bring to you Marty Noxon, who is not a household name unless you are a Buffy fan. Marty Noxon was a producer, which is to say member of the writer's team, uh, on Buffy, on Angel, and has gone on to do much, much more. Worked on Mad Men, uh, worked on Unreal, uh, and is sort of now coming into her own. I mean, she worked on many other shows that you loved, like... uh, Glee and Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, which she was the executive producer on. Uh, And now she's kind of coming into her own, her own, which is to say that she's now doing projects of her own with her name out front as the creator. Uh, I had the privilege of seeing her speak at the Toronto Screenwriting Conference a few 
months ago. And one of the things that was really interesting was that she was talking about telling stories that apply to women that don't always get told. You know, a lot of the times the gatekeepers in Hollywood, we've talked about this on this podcast, are still men. So they are less likely to green light stories they don't understand. Uh, so she has a, a she has a film uh, that is, I believe, just out now uh, or in the very near future, depending on where you are, called To the Bone, which is about uh, anorexia. Lily Collins deals with anorexia uh, in the lead role. Uh, and she's also adapting a book, and I'm so excited about this. Uh, she's also adapting a book called Dietland. So if I tell you a book is called Dietland, what do you think it's about? Losing weight. Right. Like a chiclet. It's a, it's a fiction book, right? So like, give me a stab at the plot. What do you think? Um, she's in her twenties. She, um, has always not had the typical, that magazine body, she decides to subscribe or spend a week or two at Dietland, gets closer to the magazine body, the uh, the circumstances in her life change, people notice her, the guy notices her, but she realizes that without the new body, um, or sorry, with the new body, things are still the same. She's not as confident. She is uh, still struggles with her anxiety, and she realizes that body isn't everything. Right. Um, okay. I like, you know, I would say that would be a fair pitch of a book of that type. Uh, the book, which is by Sarai Walker and which I encourage you all to read immediately is not about those things. Uh, it hints at being about those things in sort of maybe the first 10 pages. It makes about as hard a left turn as you can imagine. And, uh, without spoiling everything for you, uh, the words underground militia come to mind. And there's also a real esoteric use of uh, the name Jennifer uh, and uh, some revenge fantasies playing out. So like without spoiling the whole thing, not what you're thinking of, much more in line, for example, with what we've seen from The Handmaid's Tale and so forth. So like this is an exciting person whose work we're excited about, right? But this is not why I wanted to talk about her beyond bringing her name to the forefront. The reason I wanted to talk about her is because in an interview with Vulture that is based on To the Bone but touches on these other projects she has going on, she said the following. So she was asked about like working with Joss Whedon and is she like him or is she not? And, you know, by all means, let's continue to compare women to men they have worked with, but whatever. Uh, and she says, uh, I was meeting with a studio about directing a superhero movie with lots of big effects, she says. I was worried about not having had time to prepare for the meeting. And this woman I know said, quote, in my opinion, men come in with 60% of their preparation uh, and brag on it. And women come in with 90% and they apologize for the 10% they didn't have. Her friend advised Noxon to never apologize. Just come in and say she didn't have time to fully prepare. And part of my brain went, now the article reads, Noxon makes a mind-blown sound, so I will make that sound. Is that how it works? You brag the 60%? So what's your reaction to this? My reaction to this is, um, I've mentioned many times before, 
a book that I read a few years ago called The Confidence Code by uh, Katty Kay. And in that book, she actually interviews two women who, by all measure, have risen to the top of their game. And that is Angela Merkel, I don't need to tell you who that is, and Christine Lagarde. So Christine Lagarde is the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. So like a big fucking deal. Mm -hmm. Both women basically also said the same thing in the confidence code. Both said that we over-prepare. We make sure that whenever we go into a meeting, whenever we go into negotiation, whenever we do anything, we know everything and have covered every piece of ground so that we aren't, you know, caught unaware. And they have gone into those meetings, and you can imagine those two women in particular, Angela Merkel and Christine Lagarde, IMF and like running Germany, um, would be in many meetings, most meetings with just men. And they both have said, the men that we encounter are nowhere near as prepared as we are and somehow have gotten pretty close to our positions. And you've seen it, right? You've been in a meeting where somebody goes, anyway, what I really think we should do is do something like they're doing uh, over in, um, you know what, I don't know exactly where, but listen, it's two towns over, it was in Newsweek, and uh, they're doing a really good thing that involves doing this thing I really want to do, so we should all get behind it. You've seen that. Yeah. And people go, oh yeah, okay, good idea. And by the same token, you've seen people show up with underlined, highlighted, they are prepared and their points don't get made or they get stepped over or they make their point. And then dude is like, yeah, like I said, in Newsweek two weeks ago. And, you know, your woman is over here waving her annotated bibliography of the actual Newsweek article. What do we do? How do we fix this? I'm especially incensed by what you said about uh, the confidence code because Look, I've been in some Hollywood meetings, both in and out of Hollywood. You've been in some meetings. They are, how do I put this, often bullshit. Uh, like everybody's just kind of, in the nicest way possible, everybody just wants to make a human connection. If it works, you often get further along. If it doesn't, you don't. But those meetings that you're talking about are about hard facts and numbers, or at least leadership, and they feel the same way. What do we do? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm torn in this situation because, number one, I believe in preparation. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> like, it's going to be really hard for somebody who is used to preparing and over-preparing to go into situations and be like, I kind of know my shit. So, like, why am I spending, like, you know, eight days um, on something where I already know that I know this, but I want to know it, like… 800 times more. So that's one side of it. On the other side of it, the reality for Christine Lagarde and Angela Merkel is that, of course, when they walk into a room, they already know that the other men who are there, and they're often the only women, are going to hold them to a different standard. So that's why they're justified in over-preparing. But I think that's true of any woman. Like, I do think that's true anyway. Um, that any woman who's risen to these this point in these kinds of enterprises, as different as governing Germany and directing a big Studio FX movie can be, and then maybe not that different, depending on, you know, 
your take on things, that there's a different standard to be held. But I think what we're what we're saying here is it's not from over-preparing that the job gets done or it's or you know showing how much you know is not the thing that sells the people who need to be sold. Whatever it is, it's not necessarily that, right? You have that for your own confidence. I'm not I don't think anybody's saying don't prepare. But I think what we're sort of getting here is that the it's almost the cult of personality, right? Like that what you're selling is less, I have all this, I've done all this work, and more, this is who I am, this is what I would do if I had the time, if I was doing the thing, here's what I'll give you. It's a little bit like not doing the work for free. It's a little bit like not doing all the preparation until you're paying me, until I have the job. Then I'll do the preparation for you. Uh, is this feasible? What do we think? I don't know if it's feasible. Like I look at that Marty Noxon situation and I'm like, okay, the friend said to her, like, just go in there and be like, hey, I didn't have time to prepare. Like a dude says that and we've seen what happens. As she said, they get the job. But what does happen if a woman goes into an executive meeting with Warner Brothers and was like, I didn't have time to prepare? Does that executive look at her across the table and be like, hey, but we brought you in to like interview uh, for the new fucking, I don't know, Batman movie. And we're like, you know, we're putting $150, $200 million into this movie and you didn't prepare for this meeting? Like, that's what, she, that's what, she, that's how I would feel. I would be like, to the friend, I'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, you want me to go into a, like a meeting and say, um, yeah, you potentially want to put all this money in my hands and I didn't prepare? But you know what? I don't think it's, I don't think that's the the takeaway here. I'm I'm speaking slightly out of context in the sense that I don't want to put words in her mouth. And of course, as we know, every every article is in itself selecting bits and pieces. But I think based on how much we're hearing of her now versus what we heard from her, say, 10 years ago, and uh, what I heard her talk about uh, last month and the projects that she has coming up, I think what Marty Noxon and others are kind of getting at is I was that girl who overprepared. I did do all the work for 10 years. It's now, it's now that I'm kind of pulling back the veil and being who I am and being imperfect. And she's quite open about her battles, A, with anorexia and B, with alcoholism. Uh, it's now is her point that I'm being imperfect, that I'm getting the jobs and the acclaim and the sort of first name notoriety. Uh, so, you know, maybe the question is not like, do you prepare or not? But is this the way to to get the kind of success that we're implying everybody wants? At the beginning? What do you, no, nobody's saying at the beginning. Who said at the beginning? Sure. I mean, when you get to the level of Marty Noxon and you can come in with already a, a resume that has all this, I guess. I think that's the argument because I think, and again, I'm speaking without total context. I wasn't there with she and her friend having this conversation. But I think that's the thing, that women as far up as they w work and as many successes as they have behind them still wind up feeling as though they are auditioning. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean… For the Marty Noxons of the world, there is a sense of liberty in being able to be like that, what, the mind-blown moment? Psh, yeah, for sure. I think the other part of it is 
who are we putting in those rooms to talk to people and to hear those answers and to hear the difference um, between when a man says, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to prepare, and a woman says, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to prepare. I can tell you for sure I can say with 100% confidence that if you and I were sitting across from somebody and they walked in and we were interested in them in a position, um, boy or girl, man or woman, if they had come in and been like, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to prepare, we would judge them equally. Uh, we would judge them equally if they were, but it depends who that person is. Boy or girl, man or woman, sure. But which of our heroes? If Beyonce comes in and is like, I didn't really have time to prepare, tell me what you'd like. You'd be like, of course, of course we will. If, you know, whomever. Like, it's, it's in terms of when do you stop apologizing for who you are? Like, these are also people who, look, you're very open about having... Uh, four to seven jobs at any given time, right? Like at a certain time, you only have so many hours. And if you are meeting with somebody about a certain thing and you're like, look, I, I've given as much attention to this as I can, but it's not the same amount of attention I would give if I didn't have, you know, several other competing jobs competing for my, for my 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And in fact, that's why they want you right? They don't want somebody who doesn't also have many other interests at hand. I'm thinking about this situation and I'm trying to picture how it would have gone down. Let's say, you know, the, the, one of the most famous examples of this kind of situation, like the difference between men and, and women in Hollywood and the opportunities that are available, um, especially in director opportunities, would be the Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Is that how… I've never sort of heard the name. I, 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 I've been Trevorrow. Trevorrow, yeah. Okay. So, right? Trevorrow goes to Sundance, has a, a like a great movie at Sundance. That's and then, uh, Safety Not Guaranteed. That's yes? right. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, hey, here's Jurassic World. Exactly. Right? And so did he go into that meeting and like, was he like, oh, I didn't have time to prepare? And then, and then for example, you have like a Patty Jenkins. Or, I mean, the immediate example that was given when that story came out was Ava DuVernay. Mm-hmm. So Ava DuVernay is older than Colin Trevorrow and had much more experience at that point, but still had to wait and was still, I believe, turned down or at least made to wait. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Made to wait for that opportunity. So in those two situations, would it have been, like, could Ava DuVernay have gone in and been like, I'm Ava DuVernay. Just, you know, I, I got a lot of other things I'm doing, so I didn't have time to prepare for this, and uh, yeah. But I don't think it's that – I just want to be clear here, and the context of the quote in the Vulture article, which we will post, is whether or not there's a sense of entitlement applied to men, right? That, uh, you know, Joss Whedon was 32 at Buffy, but Marty Noxon is, uh, I think by my conservative math, 51. Dear Ms. Noxon, like you very much. Please forgive me if I have mislabeled you. Um, and is only now just hitting her stride. And does she feel like that is because of the, you know, the weight that we put on the accomplishments of women or men? At which point she gives this anecdote that, you know, not that women aren't prepared, not that nobody should prepare, but that the men who have had successes or bigger successes based on the experience of her friend are walking in there and being like, you, you know, kind of like this. And people are being like, 
here you go, here's Jurassic World, that there isn't as much preparation required for much more accomplishment. And that does blow my mind. It still does. It still does blow my mind that there are all these dottings of I's and crossing of T's and still it's like somebody who doesn't look like they've done that much work, who is not showing their work, kind of shows up and everybody's like, yeah, I guess that guy, sure, why not? And he gets Jurassic World. This poor guy is like, he's the... (laughs) (laughs) But it's bananas. And that's the part that kills me is that you said, you know, who do we put in the rooms and everybody in this industry who cares about that is on one level or another trying to change that, uh, trying to change the gatekeepers, but you have to change the gatekeepers to the gatekeepers to the gatekeepers, and it goes many levels down, and it's back to what you were talking about, about inheritances. I just, I grow frustrated when I'm like, how is this a problem we can't solve? How is this a revelation to which we have no rejoinder? I'd like to take this to our readers because many of you, we hear from you, we hear of, we hear from you, we hear your stories um, where you're working in industries outside of Hollywood, but you have seen the parallels um, at your workplaces in terms of what work looks like and who work works for more often than not. So please let us know if you're listening, let us know if you're working in law, if you're working in finance, if you're working in nursing. Let us know what that approach is. Have you overprepared when your quote-unquote competition that you're interviewing for, for that promotion or for that partnership, um, have you been in a situation where you have overprepared and you, and, but you almost don't have to. You're listening to Duana say, hey, like your reputation and your resume should speak for itself. Whoa, whoa, though. I'm not saying it does, I guess. I'm not saying don't prepare or don't work No, hard no, no. Or anything of the kind. But what we're saying is that there is palpable evidence that for some men, more than for women, that level of preparation doesn't necessarily go into getting the gig done. Right. Let us know your stories. We want to hear them. We'd love to read them on the podcast. Yes. Um, We talk about Hollywood, but the reason why, of course, is because so much of those work examples can be extrapolated and are relatable in other workplaces. So please share with us. We really want to know your stories. And one of the things that's most interesting about Hollywood is that as terrible as it is, this stuff is often kind of out on the table. People are talking about it or people are saying, or you know who gets hired for the jobs and who doesn't. So help us to help you cast a light on what's going on in in your industries, in your corners of the world, because that only helps everybody. Next, we want to cast a light on a part of the entertainment industry that perhaps is not the part of the business that lives in the light, but like, I mean, you wouldn't watch TV, you wouldn't watch anything on TV from TV shows to movies to talk shows to breakfast shows, whatever, to sporting events without this. And that is the truck, the control room. That might have been your finest segment, your finest segue. <laughs> that was really beautiful. Um, so I, like, what? Let's back it all yeah. the way up. Let's back it all the way up. There's an article in Slate. Uh, We try to be topical. You know, we try to do things that are in the news. This is not the newest article that we've seen, and it is still the one that, like, gave both of us equal amounts of joy. 
And it might not even be to you, you're listening, it might not even be the sexiest topic, but we find it sexy. So we are selling it to you. Well, we're going to show you why and how. Um, So the headline is, what's inside that big white truck outside sporting events? So you've seen this truck. It is big. It is up on like stilts. It has virtually no windows. It looks like a, but I mean, when we say truck, the way we should describe it is trailer. Right. Yes, exactly. So Um, you've seen those white trailers outside whatever venue. You go to a concert, you've always seen a white trailer. And some people think it's a hair and makeup trailer. Like a trailer on the back of a truck, we should say. Not like a trailer park home. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like a trailer uh, kind of thing. And there are some that are not unlike these that are hair and makeup or sometimes teeny tiny little dressing rooms. Uh, Hot tip. If you're ever walking by uh, a film set and you see these trailers and they, you see like the doors and they have names on them, those are the character names. They are there so that you don't figure out who's inside. But if you can figure out what the production is and you can Google it, then you can figure out who is actually John in whatever. That's right. However, the biggest, best truck is outside live events and not just sporting events, uh, obviously, outside the Oscars or the Grammys or the Super Bowl or anything else that you can think of, there is a big, big, huge truck or several. Several. Like at the Oscars, there are what, blocks of trucks? Well, at the Oscars, they dedicate a compound to trucks. So at the Oscars, across the street, um, sort of like the El Capitan where Jimmy Kimmel shoots his show, it's on that side of the street. On Hawthorne, that yeah, avenue. that's right. It's kind of beside there. There's a huge parking lot that's dedicated to trucks from all around the world broadcasting live back to Japan, Australia, from the red carpet. So their reporters are on the red carpet. The feed goes into the truck. The truck sends the feed to their home countries, and then broadcast to their home countries that red carpet show. But sorry, sorry, sorry. So so why do you need a whole truck just to broadcast a feed? So inside the truck is not just, uh, you know, some equipment or cables or whatever. There are rooms, rooms and rooms in this truck, mostly like carpet padded. Uh, and they have, you know, a live director because all these people, as you say, are not just sending back live feeds, but often live programs, live television going back to Japan or Australia or whatever, right? Right. And so the reason why we're talking about this today is because both of us, you sent it to me first and I was like, ah, I have to read this right now. Slate did an article letting people know what's in that truck. Clearly because without the truck, you wouldn't see what you're seeing on TV. And the truck is where the magic and the power happens. So, you know, a couple of years ago, we broadcast a clip on Lane and Gossip uh, that I have to find, and it was about the beauty of live directing in Greece. And there was a woman, the director, in the control room who is literally calling the cameras as this live action thing is happening. Ready one, take one, ready two, ready three, ready three, three, take three, ready four, four, coming Dissolve up, coming four. up, five, let's go. Yeah. so calm, so fine, even as millions and millions of dollars of equipment are operating around her and broadcasting like, live. Like, you actually gave it more excitement in the way that you called out the cameras than it actually was. It's literally like, lower the pitch maybe by 50%. Dissolve one, go to one, 
One, yeah, well, because a woman say, can't be seen to be being too excited, <laughs> Elaine. Come on. But that's how it works. But that was what? Three hours? For three hours. That's right. And not all sequences are that in-depth. You know, if you're at the Oscars uh, and somebody says, okay, you know, ready, take uh, camera five, c- watching them come out from the corner of the stage. Okay, ready, camera 13, take them at the center of the stage. If camera 13 is there while Halle Berry is sobbing out her acceptance speech, just to make a really current reference, um, then you're going to stay there. Then the director has a second to breathe. But you're always watching and seeing what else comes up next. Right. And I guess the reason I was interested in talking about this is because I, on television, I'm in front of the camera. So I'm considered the word, the terminology, again, let me be clear, this is not what I want to be called. Stop apologizing. Okay is the talent. So I'm in front of the camera. I'm a talk show host or one of the hosts. I have also, though, worked in the truck. A couple… The first time I worked in the truck was because we were doing our eTalk Oscar show. Um, I was not assigned to the carpet that year. I was assigned to go to the Oscars to report uh, from the press room. But also, they needed me in the truck because they knew that I could identify every assistant director slash whatever, and I could help out the director when the Viz the visuals start coming in because we've got multiple cameras and multiple screens in the truck. So you can pick up, J-Lo has arrived. Mark Anthony's getting out of the car and I can call that out. And so the director can line that up and make sure the shot goes to J-Lo getting out of the limo. So line up means get it ready, know know, what you might go to next. That's right. So that first year I worked in the truck, my job was… Um, I helped out the guy doing fonts. Um, and so um, his name is James. And um, I just want to say a little shout out to him because he's not with us anymore. Um, rest in peace. I love you. We had the best time. You were my homie. Um, anyway, so James was responsible for putting up the the actual graphic that tells you who that is. Jennifer Lopez, presenter. And so my job was to assist James. And so what happens is that we have a list of people we know are coming and they are all assigned a number. And so I would write down one, two, three, Jennifer Lopez. James had that on his little list and he would bring up the font. It would come up so the viewers would know that's Jennifer Lopez and she's a presenter that night. I came back to the hotel room after working in the truck that night Duanna and I then were getting ready for our all-nighter to write on the blog. And I said to you, holy fucking shit, I love the fucking truck. Oh my God, why don't I work in the truck? And the reason why, and then I worked in the truck a couple of years later too. The reason why I wanted to talk about this today is because most people get into television, who I talk to anyway, and they say, oh, you know, I want to be on camera. And I want to say to you, that's a great ambition. But if you are in the mood for considering an alternative ambition, you want to be in the truck. (laughs) There is no power unless you're in the truck. Well, okay. The the truck is only for live events. If you work in other parts of other TV, then, you know, there are other places where the power lives, i.e. Video Village, etc., Um, I mean, that's one of the major differences between what you do, which is live TV, and what I do, which is scripted TV, which is cut. There's less live. Um, But I would say as somebody who is a live television producer for uh, many years and, uh, you know, I live and breathe it and did live and breathe it as you do and did, 
is that the best talent, the best on-air types are the people who understand what's going on uh, in the truck or in the control room, who know what's happening to make the whole of the show and not just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, now my turn to talk hello, hello, because there are lots of those people and you can tell the difference. But here is my favorite part about the truck. And it's fun and there's lots of snacks going back and forth and it's always dark. Hot tip. <laughs> like, it is dark. It's dark. Hot tip. Do your work in the dark. It's always better. I was in a writer's room the other day. We were having some problems. We weren't quite getting to our point that we wanted. And I was like, you know what, guys? I'm going to turn out the light. I'm making the executive decision. Turned out the light. Turned on a little side lamp. We worked it out. I'm telling you, the dark is a good way to work. But in addition to all those things and tons and tons of people being crammed in there, um, the most interesting thing about the truck is that we call it the truck. And why do we call it the truck, you ask? This is the part that blew my mind the most. We call it the truck, wait for it, because it has to drive to that location. So the truck... Right. How many states does the truck have to go through before it gets to us in LA? That's our truck only. I know. Our truck that drives to LA to go to the Oscars is not ours exclusively. Uh, it is, you know, for rent for several companies in Toronto, but it literally physically drives to LA for given events, or if we were doing a big, huge event in Texas, it would physically drive to Texas or Florida or wherever to get there. The truck that we used this year for Etox Oscar show, like the week before, it was doing a hockey game in like Minnesota. Sure. So the truck traveled from wherever, Toronto, made a pit stop in Minnesota, covered the like hockey game there, and then I think maybe made another pit stop to cover like, I don't know, an NFL game or something like, or whatever, and then ended up in LA to do the Oscars. Because it makes sense. You can't fly all that equipment down there. And, you know, at a certain point renting it, as I'm sure that people who have uh, to cross international waters have to rent trucks, right? If you are, as you say, broadcasting to Australia or Japan or whatnot, I assume there are trucks for rent, which are at an extremely high premium, etc. So if you can own or rent a truck that is on North American soil, you drive it to your location <laughs> and have your traveling control room. It's just such a, it's such an analog solution to a digital interface world that I really love. It's like, well, how are we going to broadcast from wherever? Well, we'll drive you the control room. Uh, it's highly entertaining to me. It retains some charm. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this little foray into the truck. My final note about the truck, especially the trucks I've been in is, and of course, all the trucks I've been in have been restricted to the Oscars. But the truck that I know, um, so... We should sort of, what we should do is we, you know what we should do, Duanna, is we should describe the seating arrangements of the truck. Mm -hmm. So the front row yeah. of the truck, yeah. closest to all the monitors, mm -hmm. is where the director and the, the AD. Yep. Director's in the middle. AD is often usually to, to the right. left. To, well, in our truck, it was the AD was to the right. Okay. To the, the director's right. And then to the left was the uh, senior producer of the show. Where's your switcher? The switcher is, um, I think the switcher was in the second row. What is 
this bananas? I don't Stitcher know. Has don't to be trust in the front me. Row. But like, anyway. So, um, the director of every truck I've been in, and listen, I'm not like a truck expert. Like, please don't let me, you know, pass myself off as one. But the director of our Oscar telecast has always been a woman. Her name is Dawn. Her AD is a woman. And Dawn's specialty, actually, she does the Oscars once a year. She is the best. But she typically directs sports live events. So before coming to do the live Oscars broadcast, she was doing hockey games. She does football games. Um, She is... 95% of her job is directing live sportscasts. And so, to borrow from Marty Noxon, when I first went into that truck 10 years ago or more, and I saw how female our truck was, I was like, fuck yes. Yeah. And knowing that Don, and Don loves the Oscars and has a great time, but knowing that Don's day job, in quotes, was like, you know, doing football games, calling figure skating events, doing baseball, doing hockey, was like so fucking awesome and sexy to me. You mentioned the Grease Live broadcast. Yes, that was a woman. Yep. So, you know, part of us sexifying the truck for you is there are these jobs out there. They are all, and like, listen, and this is a very juvenile thing to say, but buttons are powerful. Our directors in those trucks are pushing buttons that switch off and switch on. Or making other people switch them for them. That's right. You can be holding the microphone on the red carpet, but you are nothing without Dawn saying, yeah, okay, I'll take her right now. Yeah, I'll let her speak. At any moment, Dawn will kill you. Cut her feed, take her off the air. I mean, and you mean that in the best way possible in order to make the best program. Of course. Uh, but the other thing that we should reinforce here is, you know, you, you were talking about the truck and the live TV, and I love working in scripted. It's a lot of what we talk about here, but there is no greater adrenaline, perhaps, ah. than a live event, no matter whether it's a sports event, a, you know, a music or a theater or a whatever event. If there is something that you can do that involves something that is live where it all happens and then it's over... It is pretty exciting and exhilarating. So, yeah, if you're looking to get into the business, um, if you're thinking about it, if you want to know more about it, consider the truck or control room. It's called the control room for a reason. Control. Well, this is it. It's a, We keep having postscripts on postscripts on postscripts, <laughs> but it's a control room all the time. It's a truck if it is outside of a live event that is bigger than the television show, which is to say the news has a control room. Uh, E-Talk or The Social have control rooms. When they are live on location, then it's the truck. One more postscript. Here we go. (laughs) So uh, Yasik had some friends from out of town come in. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, they come in to play golf. They're not super interested in in television and all that and what I do, but they did come by the studio the other day to say hi to me, and they wanted a tour. And so uh, they came, they did a tour of the studio, and I said, do you want to see a control room? They were like, sure. Yasik's never seen the control room before. So I brought him into the control room and they were fascinated. I mean, that was like to them, like I could see their eyes. I could see the interest. I could see them look at all the screens, the buttons, the panels, the levers, whatever. And then their next question, because um, we were in a control room that was shooting a taped show. Sure. And so 
they could see the hosts, the presenters on the monitors and the, you know, the hosts and presenters were joking around um, and they said, where is that studio? Like that was the next. So I took them up to the studio after to see where the studio and the show is shot and so they could understand how it then it gets fed into the control room and then packaged together. That was fascinating to them. I say this because, and maybe I'll get in trouble for this, I say this because when I've brought women into the studio before, that's not typically been their interest. The control room, you know, all that, seeing, seeing that sort of, they, it's glazed over. Their interests are somewhere else. And I don't think that what my example is, is indicative and a good generalization. I do believe that women, as we've seen, we've just named off Dawn, the director of Greece. I do believe that women are interested in these roles. But I just, you know, I wanted to, let me call myself out. Maybe I'm making a generalization that's unfair. But I feel like the reason why this Slate article was so exciting is because I want women to be reading articles like that and saying, the next time I go into a studio, that's what I fucking want to see. Well, and to postscript your postscript of the postscript. Yeah. Maybe what we'll do is post a picture of a control room. Maybe not yours, but a control room. And one of the reasons, now that you mention it, that it might look intimidating is because it looks real techy. It looks like there's a whole lot of stuff and rivets and whatever else. Uh, there's a lot of, not that anybody should be afraid of those things, but it was you saying there are levers that that <laughs> killed me because there are, in fact, levers. Many levers. And there are things like, like uh, uh, you know, there are things, gyroscopes. And dials. Uh, you know, and it does look a little bit like 1960s Sequest. So we're going to post a photo. Please know that we've had some of the best times of our lives together and separately in there. Uh, and, uh, you know, think about like, yeah, okay, is this intimidating? Is it not? Or what's something that I may have unwittingly be intim been intimidated about that I don't need to? Okay, it is time for Do We Need to Care About? Uh, and I sort of double-crossed myself on this one, uh, but you sent an article uh, involving T.J. Miller kind of spilling all the tea on all the reasons he left Silicon Valley. That's right. I And I sent it to you because many readers sent it to us mm -hmm. saying, you know, is this good for show your work? Right. Um, in particular, it's T.J. Miller giving this article, or it's it's a... It's T.J. Miller doing an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, and this interview is like, you know, as you said, what, spilling all the tea? Yeah. But in the most aggressive, uh, shit-disturber, dicky way is the way I read it and I describe it. Well, I'm going to go one further and go, like, who asked you? Like, it's very – I had been talking to you about somebody else who I thought was sort of uh, unafraid of the consequences of the press – and then this dude uh, sort of spilled all this stuff about why he quit the show and why he wasn't going to be back and so forth. And it felt like, are you protesting much more than anybody even cares? Yeah. And for the people who visit our blog, many of you were like, is this a career killer? And do we like this? What does this mean? Is he... Is he actually revealing the inner workings of how it, how it goes on an HBO show, or is this ungrateful? Several of you, thank you, asked, what would happen if a woman spoke this way? That's correct. Uh, so, yeah, this is show your work. This is what we talk about here. Um, 
And this is, do we need to care about T.J. Miller? I will start by saying that I think over a year ago, T.J. Miller either hosted something or was on something. I, I don't even care enough to actually look back and, and sort of reference the article and the event where I asked this question, but I actually put it in the post about whatever event that was. And I was like, do I need to care about T.J. Miller? Like, because I don't. At the time, I was like, whatever. I don't watch Silicon Valley. Sorry, my bad. But I also didn't find him particularly funny. I wondered out loud, asking everybody, you know, the readers who visit our blog, do I need to? Like, in a year, is this guy going to blow up? And like, I'm going to be like, oh, shit, I should have cared more. And now, after this article, I feel validated because I didn't. And I didn't, you know, read up on T.J. Miller. And now I don't feel like I'm going to or have to or want to. So I do watch Silicon Valley, not religiously. It's one of those shows that I dip in and out of, and I enjoy it so much every time. Uh, but what's fascinating about it is as much as he was the guy and he's like kind of a, a big presence and he's swinging around all the time. I wish you guys could see me swinging my arms trying to approximate his like hair and curliness. But uh, the show is entertaining regardless. It's not, it's not entertaining because of him. What's interesting to me is that I don't think the show is going to suffer. Uh, of course, you know, the show stars Thomas Middleditch. Uh, it show it stars Kumail Nanjiani, uh, whose name I have mispronounced uh, on this podcast before, but who is, of course, now the star of The Big Sick. Uh, so the stars of Silicon Valley are becoming household names in their own right. Uh, nobody's relying on T.J. Miller. We don't really need him, so I don't know what the point was. The other thing that bothers me from a show your work point of view is there's a whole lot of, I don't know, fifth year of undergrad. What does it all mean? What does it all matter? I just went to see what would happen if I blew it all up. Well, and also like there's a, I wanted to see what would happen. And then there's also a, like, I never wanted this in the first place. It was a joke that they thought I was an actor. Uh, that, right? Uh, stop it. Stop it. How right? old is that guy? Let's find out. Please stand by. It was a joke that they thought of it as I was an actor. I'm a stand-up comic. Like, you know, I, and I, I'm like, okay, so you don't want to ever act again? So you're not going to be auditioning for movies? You don't want the Jack Black... Uh, the what like that comic to headlining films journey? Sure, How dare you? T.J. Miller is born in 1981. This is later than I expected. I expected a full Gen X birthday because Gen Xers are so afraid of caring too much, which is so boring to me. Sidebar: If you are in the Oregon Trail generation, uh, if you are, you know what that means. Uh, please write and tell me whether you think this is a thing or not. I can't decide whether I buy into it or I don't. Anyway, TJ Miller, how dare you be like, I never cared anyway. It was just a joke to something that people are working so hard for and about. Yeah, like it's they're on so many levels. And then he takes a shot at Middle Ditch and was like, uh, yeah, he's the whatever and I'm this guy. And it's it's a comparison. It's I'm cool and I'm the I don't give a fuck and he wants it so bad. Well, fuck you, James Franco. Basically, I'm over anybody who does not care. We have mocked or at least, you know, smirked at people who really, really sweat how much they want things or nominations or whatever. But I will always take wanting something over not wanting something. And 
I will always take not wanting something over pretending you don't want something because me thinks that us protest too much. If you're making this much noise about how much you don't care and how much you don't want to be on the show and how popular and busy you are that you can't be there, I don't know if I buy it. Well, okay. I remember the, ho- like, I remember the event that he hosted. It was the Critics' Choice Awards. Why the <laughs> fuck are you hosting the Critics' Choice Awards if you don't give a shit? Correct. Also, uh, Critics' Choice Awards, you might find a truck or several there. It would be more <laughs> interesting than T.J. Miller. Um, so, yeah, no. If a woman did this, uh, I don't know if she would dare, you know? And if she did, she would be in a bigger, better position than T.J. Miller. I mean, look, I, I, I'm, I, I just want to puke out. Like, I... This is what I think. Did it make you madder than you expected? I, talking to you about it, I guess, has made me mad. Like, when I read about it, I was more eye roll, like, fuck off. Like, you know, as I said, validating. But now I'm like, I didn't care about you before. I'm going to care about you even less. And to those of you who do care, write in and let us know. Yeah, you can correct us. All right, let's do a super fast palate cleanser. <laughs> that's how much we fucking cared about T.J. Miller. All right, I'm moving like on. That's fine. Uh, it is time for the celebrity hometown quiz. We talked uh, when we last podcasted about uh, whether or not shouting out one's hometown is exclusive to rap and hip hop. Whether people who have hometown pride are so who are celebrities are people we know more than not. Uh, And so we're going to quiz ourselves on some hometown knowledge. Okay. Well, I did not do my homework. I did. I came came with the 60% bragging. And you know what, guys? I have the date stamp when I said study (laughs) up. I believe it was uh, Saturday afternoon. I I studied. I didn't prepare a quiz. Well, so what did you, what do you, okay. Well, you apply the quiz and the studying in whatever way you would like. Fine. Fine. Is it an essay question? Fine. <laughs> okay, who goes first? Go, since you prepared your test. Oh, my God. Okay, here we go. Okay, are we going by celebrity or by hometown? Oh, my God. You designed the test. Don't ask me. Just well, test me. Well, I'm trying me. to accommodate your 60% here. Okay, give me the hometown of Idris Elba. Uh, London. There we go. Very good. Uh, how about the hometown of Demi Lovato? Oh, I want to say that Demi Lovato is from Texas. Can you be more specific? Oh, Beyonce's from Houston. Is she from Houston? Selena Gomez is also from Texas, but I'm pretty sure Selena Gomez is from Corpus Christi. Um, is Demi Lovato from Corpus Christi? Uh, I'm going to say Demi Lovato is from Dallas. Excellent work. Thank you. Very nice. Okay. Uh, are you quizzing me? What's happening? Okay. (laughs) Okay. I have more, but you know. Um, give me the hometown of Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway is from New Jersey. Uh, Carmen went to New Jersey. Give me the hometown of Donald Glover. Atlanta. Is it? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, now you're shaking my... I thought he was from Michigan. Oh, Georgia. Oh, this is a trick one. Donald Glover was born at Edwards Air Force Base in California and raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia. So, do there we you accept go. Atlanta? I, I accept Atlanta on my okay. own behalf. Okay. Uh, but not really, because it's a bit of a cheat, too. Got it. Okay. For my final challenge, please name a celebrity from one of the following locations. You may choose St. Louis. Okay. Denver. Or South America? Um, St. Louis, I will say Nelly. <laughs> and John Hamm. Nelly. Nelly. I'm so that, happy that was, I got I, – I, I'm so happy I found a Nelly in, that was in nice our work. podcast. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. This was super fun. We love talking about this stuff with you. We love the letters that you send us about how this does relate to your life or doesn't the work struggles that you find yourself in. Uh, we always want to hear more about it. Hey, and do us a favor because we just found out that when you leave reviews and ratings on iTunes for the podcast, it helps people find it. Which is great because then we can argue with more people. You can argue with people. It's all more fun. So check us out on iTunes and Google Play and we will be back next week. In the meantime, work hard. Show your work. See you next time. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.